Father, thank you that we've talked about your amazing grace. And Lord, we're continuing to be overwhelmed by that grace each and every day of our lives as we come to terms with your deep love and affection for us, the fact that you send your son, Jesus Christ, to be our sacrifice, to wash us clean, to justify us before you, to sanctify us continually in our lives each and every day. And Lord, as we gather together this morning, we pray that you would indeed touch our hearts. Lord, my, my prayer every week is that, you know, we just don't do this just for the fact that it's something to keep us busy. We're doing this because we want to draw people to the wonderful God that we worship, to his son, Jesus Christ, to the one who's made all things new and the one who cleanses us and gives us new hope and a new life, and not just a new life for here and now, but a new life for all eternity. So, Lord, we celebrate all of that today as we gather together to worship, and we pray that you would bless someone's heart today, that you would draw somebody even closer to yourself today because of what they have witnessed today. And we thank you for all that you're doing in the lives of the people in this church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to say something, and probably I shouldn't really say this in church, but um, religion can be really dangerous. Religion can lead us, if we're not careful, as, as a system, can lead us into two very unfortunate um, kind of endpoints or, or circumstances or, or outcomes that I think is very easy for us to do. You know, as human beings, you can, we can fall into these patterns very, very easily. And the first one is religious elitism. You know, um, we're, we're it. No one else counts. No one else has it right. We're the only ones that's got it figured out. We're the only ones that, that uh, know what it is that is God's will and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's a danger with religious elitism. And the self, second thing is self-righteousness. We can say, you know, it's, I, I did it all. I was, I was the one to accomplish it. God loves me, you know. You know um, God loves everybody, but I'm his favorite. You ever read that bumper sticker? Okay. You know, we, there's this kind of religious elitism. And what, and what happens with religious elitism and self-righteousness is that they can cause us, if we're really not careful and aware that they're happening in our lives, we can become very judgmental. We can look down on other people. We can, we can say, you know, or we can have, be apathetic as well. I'm in. I don't have to worry about anybody else. I don't have to care for anybody else. I don't have to do anything, you know, that's going to be hard or messy. You know, if you were, if you were here last week when we did the Good Samaritan, you probably realize when you, when you come to the Good Samaritan that life is really messy. People are really messy. It's going to put you in the arena in a way that's not easy. We can't, you know, like to reach out to everybody is, is a hard thing to do. How do you know when to pull back? How do you know to help? How do you know, how do you, like how much of, do you, of yourself do you empty in order to help someone else who's probably not even willing to, to help themselves? You know? Religion is really messy. And because of those kinds of things that happen dealing with other people, you can get kind of self-righteous or you can get, become spiritually elite 
And you can say, I don't, I don't need to deal with this. I'm already in. God already loves me. I've already been blessed. I know what eternity seals for me, so I don't have to do this kind of hard stuff that Christianity demands of me. And I've said for a long, long time, if you're, you know, and by the way, um, this whole spirit of elitism and uh, this, this business of self-righteousness doesn't happen just in religious circles. You know, I've met people who have said, I don't like organized religion, which is really kind of a crazy statement. I thought, what do you like, disorganized everything or what? Like, I just never could figure that particular comment out. But I've met people who say, I'm not into religion, but I'm spiritual. Some of the most arrogant people I've ever met are the spiritual people, to be honest. They're some of the most arrogant, you know, self-righteous people I've, I've run into. And that's a real dilemma. And, you know, Jesus, when he came to this earth, he absolutely had to deal with spiritual elitism, religious elitism, and this sense of self-righteousness. That's the thing he constantly was up against when, when he was walking the earth. So, you know, we're doing this, this series on, on stories that move the heart. And we're going to look at another parable today where Jesus confronts this problem head on, you know, this absolute problem head on. So um, let me just set up the story a little bit. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus is invited to a dinner at a leader, of, a, a Pharisee, a leader of the Pharisees to his home, okay, which was really common in that day and age to be invited, especially if you were a, uh, a religious leader of, of sorts, because in that day and age, they invited people like that in their home because they actually enjoyed talking about two things we say are forbidden in our culture today. What are the two things you're not supposed to talk about? Politics and religion, right? In that day and age, they actually invited other rabbis in to talk politics and religion. And they did it over the table because if you were a traveling rabbi and you came in, they would invite you to the synagogue. They would tell you, hey, open up. We want to know what your theology is. We want to know what your political leanings are, right? Imagine if that was to happen in our day and age, right? Especially during COVID, right? I don't think there's anybody in this room that has the same opinion about COVID and lockdowns together. Can we just say that? It's been a mess. Can we just say it's been a mess? Say after me, it's been a mess. It's been a mess, okay. We got it off our chest, okay? Hopefully no more lockdowns ever again. Can we just say that? Unless, unless you want to be locked down, and I'm not going there, okay? I'm not, let's not go there, okay? <laughs> Um, but they've invited Jesus to, the, to his house, to this Pharisee's house, and it's the Sabbath, and of course the Sabbath is a sacred day for the Jewish people. And, every, and, it's, and, the, and the text tells us that everybody's watching Jesus. Now, there happened to be a person there that was sick. And Jesus asked this question of the religious leaders who are all, you know, in this, in this room. Is it allowable for me to heal this person on the Sabbath? Okay? Now, no one answers Jesus at this time. No one answers. Okay? Because it's kind of an obvious question. Now, I don't know if you know this about the first century, but we always get upset with the Pharisees about the Sabbath and they wouldn't heal somebody and all this kind of stuff. Here's the law when it comes to religious leaders about the Sabbath. If, if the person, okay, if it could wait a day to heal them, 
and they've had this ailment for a long, long time. That's the, that's the issue for the Pharisees. It's not that you couldn't absolutely do it, absolutely not do it on the Sabbath. If someone was dying, that was a life and death situation that they would do a healing or, you know, take care of that person on the Sabbath. It's an extreme case. But they had all these rules. But if the person could wait one day to be healed, their opinion was, why didn't you wait? You knew it was the Sabbath, so why didn't you wait? Because one day is not going to make a difference. It's not going to matter. So that's the rule about the Sabbath, because we hear all the time, the Sabbath, 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 and all this kind of stuff, but they actually had stipulations, and they actually had rules about it, where it was acceptable to do certain things and not acceptable to do other things. So Jesus is testing them in this particular thing. You know, so Jesus goes ahead and heals the person and touches them, and he says to them, if your son or your cow, interesting to things, um, falls into a pit, wouldn't you pull them out, even if it was the Sabbath? Well, everybody knows, you know, even though the Pharisees didn't answer again, everybody knows that the obvious answer is, yeah, we would, we would do something, obviously. Of course they would. Then, you know, Jesus has done this healing, and, and now they're starting to sit around this big banquet table, this, this opportunity where they go and now have this meal, this hospitality meal, because this is what they've invited Jesus for in the first place. In the hospitality meal, Jesus notices that they're all vying for the head of the table and prestige and all of, all of this stuff. You know, who's the most important? I deserve this place at the, at the seat. And remember last week I said, Jesus, many times, you know, could have started an argument or could have just said, listen, this is what God wants you to do. But often he would just stop, park, and tell a story. Because the story is far more powerful. It gets the message across better. And we all like, you know, a story that sort of hits the heart. But here's one time where Jesus actually tries to teach them. And this is what he says. This isn't going to be on the screen. So I'm just going to read the text for you here. But Jesus tries to teach the religious leaders something. So he turns to the host, and he says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, oh, I got the wrong passage. Yeah, do I ever have the wrong passage? Yeah, I don't even have that passage. Anyway, I, was, I got the, yeah, oh, yeah, is this week three? Sorry, you know. Um, listen, no, I, I've, I've got it. I'll just extraneously tell the story. Thank you, Brent. I really appreciate it. Sorry, guys. I had a haircut this week, so it's a big deal for me. You know, I'm sitting in the barber chair, and I'm going, I want to hug you right about now. And, and, and the guy kind of goes, uh, yeah, I, I, I get that. And I said, but I'm going to tip you really well because I'm, I'm sure you like that better than, than me wanting to hug you right about now. So I tipped him really well and said, welcome back, and I hope we get to do this again real soon. Because <laughs> my church has had to witness this mop for the last two and a half, three months. Anyway, little little aside there. But, um, but Jesus starts teaching them and saying, listen, don't vie 
for the head of the table. Well, no, why don't you defer your position? Why don't you share the position? It doesn't mean about elevating yourself. And it's not about you getting the best of everything. And he's trying to teach them about, you know, think of others better than yourselves and give them the head of the table. What does it matter where you sit? You know, that kind of lesson. And the part that really gets me, the part that really gets me is, is Jesus has just taught that. And then all of a sudden he says this. Okay, there's somebody in the room that says, hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Now, unpack that a little bit. Jesus has just taught them to defer the, you know, their rights and, and their, their prestige and, and their place at the table to somebody else, okay? And to give other people the priorities and think of others. And all of a sudden, one of the people at the table says, man, it's going to be a blessing to be, to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Imagine the assumption right away. And imagine saying that in the middle of a teaching where Jesus is going to say, don't think of yourself as special. And all of a sudden, this person just goes to the kingdom of God. I'm in. So no matter what happens, that's a sense of arrogance, isn't it? A sense of self-righteousness. A sense of spiritual elitism. And that's what happens. You see, in that day and age, especially, and you know, it's still prevalent today in, in many of our theologies, is that there's going to come a day where there's going to be a banquet in heaven. And all of us, everyone who has made a profession of faith, everyone who's been believers in Jesus, are going to enjoy this incredible banquet. In fact, we're going to do communion today a little later. And that's what it's going to celebrate. That's what communion points forward to in many ways. That you and I, at some point, you know, whether we want to believe it literally, figuratively, are going to have this hospitality meal where we're sitting in the kingdom of God and we're all together and Jesus is there. That's kind of like the messianic banquet that comes out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Isaiah, especially. And as this person has said this, the expectation from Jesus is he's going to say something like, oh, yeah, absolutely, just Keep the commandments as stated by the law of Moses. And when that great day comes, we will be considered worthy to sit with the Messiah at his banquet. If he had said that, if Jesus had said that, they all would have said, hey, that's really cool. You and I are on the same side. We're all together in this. And we'll go on to the next topic and we'll talk about something else. Because in many ways, what this man is saying is a bit of a test for Jesus. What do you really believe about the Messiah? What do you really believe about the Messianic kingdom? Do you think the hospitality of God is, is here in this room with us? This kind of spiritual elitism. And Jesus, trying to teach them something and gets this response, does what he does best. He starts to tell a story. And here's the story. Okay? So verse 16 of Luke chapter 14. 
says this. Then he turned to the host and he said, Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests. Now notice when the banquet was ready, okay? In that day and age, you, you, you prepared the banquet, then you sent out the invitation. It's a little different than how we do it here. We say save the date, okay? We, in that day and age, you know, it was all close proximity. Hospitality was a common thing. Send it out, you know. These invitations, by the way, the implication is all going out to our friends, all these people that we know, all these people that are aware and who we want to invite because they're all known to us. So he says to the servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, the implication is a little bit that the banquet's ready. It's almost as if you're cooking in the kitchen. You know, you've been slaving away. People are in your house. And suddenly when you come out and you start laying everything on the table, everybody starts going, oh, got to wash my hair. See you later. That's the implications of every one of these excuses that happens as the master is trying to get people to come. These are, you know, difficult excuses. There's a person who buys a property but doesn't even see it. Okay? Now, I know in our modern real estate thing, that's happening quite a bit. Okay? But in that day and age, you went to inspect it. You went to have a look at it. You just didn't buy something sight unseen. It's not like they could go on the internet and get the real estate agent to send the pictures. Not even remotely close. Or an oxen bought by the next person had not even tried yet. Not, it's like buying machinery. You don't even know. It's, you buy it as is. You know How old are these oxen? What if they're so old you can't even use them for one row in the field? But you bought them anyway? What are you talking about? Or, actually, the last one, culturally, is a big insult. Okay? A big insult. I'm not coming. I got a woman now. I'm busy. Okay? That's the implication of the text. It's very crude. It's very ignorant. But I'm gone. Okay? I got better things to do. So this is really these excuses to a to a ancient near east culture is really awful excuses they're not very healthy they're not very good and they're incredibly insulting incredibly insulting so the story now twists in the next stage of the story as jesus tells it starting at verse 21 The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. 
So, that his, so his master said, go out into the country lanes, behind the hedges, urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of the banquet. Now that's a pretty harsh statement. But notice how the thing turns on the master becoming angry. Here's an incredible invitation. All you, know, all you could eat, everything that you can possibly imagine, the very benefits of the kingdom of God, and you're refusing it. And not only are you refusing it for anything that's even remotely legitimate, but you're refusing it on insignificant, inconsequential reasons that you could have easily delayed or could have easily have waited to say or to use. Now, the expectation is you, you, you upset the master. If you upset the master, there's going to be retaliation. There's going to be there's going out and getting, you know, even. Because the master is angry. The insults are deep. Insults are hurtful. And you would expect this kind of, I'm going to get you back, or I'm going to remember this. But that's not what happens. The anger becomes converted. And the anger becomes converted in the sense that there's an open invitation suddenly to everyone. And the open invitation is to those who are sitting at the table, by the way, are thinking are not worthy of the kingdom of God. This is an absolute, you know, hidden uh, parable about, you know, the self-righteous attitudes of the religious leaders of the time and how even the nation of Israel, you know, we're the chosen one. We're the, we're the favored ones. We're the ones that, you know, are in the good graces of God. And those people that are outside the kingdom, uh, what, we what we define as the kingdom, are not the ones that are going to be at the banquet. We are going to be at the banquet of God. And these people who are on the outside don't deserve it. And suddenly, Jesus turns the entire thing on its head and says, you know, you're expecting to be the ones that on the, you know, the great day of the banquet of God, the great day of the, of the kingdom of God, the great day of when the Messiah sits at the banquet table, you're going to think you're going to be right there at the head. But you're going to be surprised to know who is going to be there. The very people that you would never have expected that God would show any grace to, God would show any favor to, but they're going to be right there. It's one of those, it's another one of those parables, not just one of those. It's another one of those parables that challenges the way that we see people. It challenges the way we understand the kingdom of God. It challenges us when we talk about God as a God of love. God is a God of invitation. We don't often talk about God being a God of invitation, okay? Sometimes we think when we're, you know, doing a work for God that we have to be the ones that help them cross the line or, you know, we're the ones responsible for the way that they respond to God. 
But often I wonder if we ever tell people that there's this incredible invitation that God is extending to you. And it's an invitation to eternity. It's an invitation to sit at the feet of God, at the banquet table of God, and celebrate every blessing that God, you know, wants to bestow on us as his people. There's just something powerful about the hospitality nature that we find in, in, in the Bible that really speaks to the heart of God being in communion with us. Like, you know, when, when, when we come to the communion table, which we're going to do in a few minutes, and by the way, if you haven't picked up your communion cups, they're at the back of the room. You can just pick one up um, as, as we get ready for this. But I just, it's, it's amazing to me because often we celebrate communion and we, we do communion in a way where we're the ones being re- reflecting on, you know, what Jesus did for us and all that stuff. But there's something about the communion table where it says that Christ is meeting us as well. That we are in communion with God. That when we come around the communion table, we're reminded of of the incredible grace that has been extended to each and every one of us. That's part of this story about the banquet too, is that this incredible grace of God has been extended to the people that the religious leaders never would have imagined would be part of the kingdom of God. You know, you've always heard, you know, many of you have heard, you know, you're going to be surprised who you're going to see in heaven. And you're going to be surprised who's not there. Because this, this dangerous thing that we've talked about, and I think it's, I, I think it's absolutely a, 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 a dangerous virus that is going around. You know, you talk about COVID and all this kind of stuff. I think, I think one of the most dangerous viruses that goes around is self-righteousness or religious elitism. That's, that's an unhealthy virus. Because it's certainly, and, and, you know, we talked about how you become judgmental, you're apathetic to other people, but what it does is it actually, in many ways, disconnects you from the grace of God. It suddenly becomes a performance religion. It suddenly becomes something where you need to, you know, continue being perfect so God can love you more or God can, you know, do more of a work in you and, and those kinds of things. And it's, and it's a wrong attitude and it's a dangerous attitude. It can actually disconnect you from the grace of God. And when you are kind of feeling the weight of your own sin and all that stuff, it's almost like you get disconnected from God because you think you've got to fix it yourself. You know, I've... I've I've said this many times, the older I get, the less I understand. So right about now, there's a lot I don't understand. And, you know, two, two concepts that I struggle with more and more the older I get is the concept of grace and the concept of God's love. I think, I think we have no idea the breadth, depth, you know, um, the wide net that gets cast over us by the love of God and the grace of God. Two things. If, we, if, 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 if Jesus was ever to shine a mirror, an actual mirror of how we are in comparison to himself, I think we'd be shocked at just how foggy that mirror is to see our reflection 
and yet to see it perfected in the person and the work of Jesus Christ because of what he's accomplished for us. I think this story illustrates beautifully how we can get off the rails, how we can kind of think that we're okay and that I don't need to, you know, worry about anybody else or worry about, you know, living the fulfillment of the Christian life because I'm in and it's okay. But self-righteousness and religious elitism are very, very dangerous dangerous thing. You know, I came, I recently became, came across somebody kind of, um, you know, on, of the spiritual thing, and we're sort of talking, and it's like, uh, oh, yeah, you're a Christian? Yeah. So, and it was almost the attitude like, yeah, one of these days you'll become enlightened and you'll get it right. And I thought, wow. You know? And I thought, where, where do you get... By the way, New Age or spiritual, where, where do you get your uh, revelation from? You ever wondered about that? I've, I've, I've never, where, where do you get your revelation from, right? Kind of what feels good for me or what feels good to them is basically what it is. And yet we have, you know, Scripture and the, and the Word of God in this amazing text that time and time again talks about this thing of grace. You know, and I, I can't help not seeing the force of this particular text because when the servant goes out, the servant is, is told by the master, urge them, compel them, Make, you know, make the invitation so appealing. Make, you know, um, tell them what, how necessary it is for them to come to the banquet. And there's a part of me when reading that parable, I know we have to be careful with parables, how, how literal you have to take some of these things. But I'm shocked by the language. Like sometimes I wonder if we're just not complacent in our spirituality either. either. That we don't spend time telling people or compelling people on how important the message of Jesus is. And you know, everyone sitting at that banquet table would have soon realized through the story that Jesus was telling that he's actually talking about them and he's pointed at himself as the Messiah. That's the implication of this particular story, that they would have come to the realization he's talking about himself. And he's talking about us as those thinking that we're going to be on the inside, but really we're going to end up on the outside. And Jesus is the one that's going to be hosting this banquet, this beautiful depiction that we have of the kingdom of God that for centuries our people have talked about, can't wait till it comes. And Jesus basically says, be careful your arrogance doesn't find you outside of the banquet because you have this expectation that you're okay, but your religious elitism and your self-righteousness is actually blinding you to the way you're treating others. That's a beautiful... I'll tell you, isn't that, isn't that a beautiful parable? It's, 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 it's one that kind of hits home for many of us. But again, it's another messy one. It's another messy one.
So, I've alluded to communion already a little bit, and we often, we've often treat communion very much as, as, as a past event thing. But if you read this, you know, passages like 1 Corinthians, you know, 12 to 15, and you get the whole, um, under, or 11 and, all, and, and onward, you get this whole idea that the, when the Apostle Paul talks about the beautiful things about the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper, is that it has a past, present, and a future reality. This banquet thing that we're talking about is actually a future idea that's also brought out of communion. You know, there's this present sense that we partake of this communion, celebrating what Christ has done in us, a new creation, this beautiful picture of who we are in Christ. And we treat it as this, you know, reflection backwards on what Jesus has accomplished for us. But there's even a passage that, that says that Jesus says, you know, he took that last cup and he said, I will share this cup with you in the kingdom once again. That's the allusion to all of this stuff about the messianic banquet and looking forward to what the book of Revelation says about, you know, the coming around the Lord's table and all of that. So today as we celebrate communion, if you're at home and you're watching this and you have the communion elements ready, I, I, want, I want you to take um, the first element, which is representative of Jesus' body. And instead of reflecting backwards, you know, the sacrifice of Jesus points us to this beautiful, eternal hope that we have. That there is an eternity, one that we are going to celebrate at the banquet table of the Messiah. And Jesus pointed to this future. And the Apostle Paul wrote that we take this communion until the day Jesus returns. So it not only has a present past reality, it has a future expectation as well. And that's a beautiful part of are being able to partake of the communion. So Jesus took the bread that night with his disciples as they were, you know, enjoying this banquet, this, this meal called the Last Supper, called the Passover meal, I should say. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to them, take this, it's my body broken for you. As you've heard me many times say, in the Passover meal, there are four cups. Jesus took the third cup, which is known as the cup of redemption during the Passover meal. And with the cup of redemption, he transformed it. Okay? The fourth cup is called the cup of Elijah, and it's the cup that looks to the future. And that's the one that Jesus said, you know, we will do this together in the kingdom of God. But the third cup he, he took is known as the cup of redemption. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me.
Communion shared by the church is a wonderful example of an expectation that we have of being in the kingdom of God, being together, and enjoying the fellowship of the Messiah, celebrating all that he has done, and witnessing the beauty of heaven together. I pray that as we have joined together in communion and celebrated everything that this parable has taught, that we will live our lives reflective of the grace of God. You know, I'm, I'm starting, I'm starting to, to... Every day in my, in, in my daily meditations is to really focus on the grace of God in my life. I think it's, it's becoming more and more a priority in my life that grace is such an important part of what we all enjoy and live with. And I think the more we focus on the grace of God and what he's done in our lives, the more it'll, it'll bring joy into our lives, the more it'll bring thankfulness into our lives, the more it'll, it'll put us in a position where we see others the way God sees others. And when we live with that grace, I would argue our lives are f- far more fulfilled and far more intentional the way God and, and Jesus wants us to live our lives. It is easy to become judgmental. It is easy to become self-righteous. It is easy to become, you know, a religious, you know, a religious elite. It's easy because that's, that's, you know, that's kind of like the common denominator of, of, our, of our dark side, if you want to call it that. And that's always a tension, isn't it? Right? I, said, I say many times, I say to my students in spiritual development class, if you have tension in your life because you, you know, you have tension in your life because you want to be more like Jesus and you struggle, how do I reach out to toxic people or, you know, you're, you're struggling with, should I give more and all those kinds of things. I think those are, those are good tensions in your life. I really do. I know you want to be comfortable and I know you want no tension. You don't want any anxiety in your life. But I honestly believe that if you've got tension in your life about growing, that's the spirit of God challenging you or keeping you, you know, in, in the midst of his grace and not falling into a self-righteous component or I'm okay component or anything like that. I think if you're authentically living for Jesus, a little bit of tension in your life is okay. It's absolutely okay. Because it tells me that the Spirit of God is working in you and you're actually on the right course. That's what it tells me. Okay? All right. Um, let, me, let me pray and I'm going to invite the worship team to close this in a song. And uh, be- before I pray, can I say one of, the, one of the desires I have for the pandemic to get done and over with is that we don't have to start, we don't have to keep using these things because they taste awful. <laughs> can we just get that off our chest, okay? Because they're horrible. Even, even the wafer is horrible, right? How do you get a cracker wrong? Somebody explain Somebody explain that to me. Anyway, I'm, <laughs> let's pray and let's celebrate grace, okay? Father in heaven, thank you for this powerful parable and another, 
another moment where Jesus, you know, tells a story that, that moves people's hearts and reminds them of, you know, two outworkings of religion that can become very, very, very dangerous. This self-righteous attitude, this religious elitism that we can sort of get caught up in. Lord, remind us every day of your grace. Remind us that all are invited, regardless of the categories and, and, and you know, the social structures we put in place for people. But help us, Lord, to manage really well the beautiful grace that you have given each and every one of us. The sacrifice of Jesus as we've come through communion and been reminded of the sacrifice and of the present realities that we enjoy because of it, but also to reflect on the future hope, which is part of communion as well. So Lord, as we have gathered together today, we thank you so much for all that you're doing in our lives, for your faithfulness, for your grace, for your love that are far more powerful than anything we can ever imagine or hope for. And we thank you. And we pray today that someone will have been drawn closer to you because of this beautiful parable. And someone may have been challenged about the way that they're living their lives with expectations that really could lead them down a very dark place. So Lord, may your grace touch each and every one of us in a very special way today. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.